Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. This podcast contains references to suicide, violence and sexual violence against children. Listener discretion is recommended. It's the morning of Sunday the 21st of January 1900 and the West Australian goldfields are in a state of disbelief. For the past five years, young George Blunderfield has been a respected and popular citizen in Kalgoorlie and done the town proud with his prowess as a champion cyclist. When he was banned from the sport for using offensive language, the Kalgoorlie Bicycle Club he'd given so much to gave back to him when they rallied to his defence. Yes, the past three months have put a new complexion on the man, but many believed he was innocently in possession of a stolen bicycle. As for that charge of attempted murder against a mate, well, the Perth jury did acquit, believing he'd acted in self-defence. Now though, all that goodwill, and all that willingness to believe, has evaporated in an instant. That's because as people of the goldfields come out of their church services, they learn that George Blunderfield is behind bars and under arrest for last night raping a six-year-old girl. The victim is a child he knows. She's the daughter of a woman who's one of his friends and neighbours. From this morning forwards, the name of George Blunderfield will never be anything other than infamous, which is why he'll shed his skin and become someone new as soon as as he possibly can. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Nature of the Scorpion. Part three will be released next week, but you can hear the whole story now by becoming a Patreon supporter. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia and you can find this link in your show notes. George Blunderfield faced Kalgoorlie Police Court on the morning of Monday the 22nd of January, charged with the rape of the six-year-old girl. I'm going to call her Annie and her mother Jane. This is out of consideration for family members who might not know what their ancestors endured 120 years ago. The police alleged that about 9pm on Saturday night, Jane had left Annie and her little brother tucked up in bed while she went out to do some shopping in Kalgoorlie. Jane locked the front door, but the back door didn't lock, so she propped it closed with a chair, as she usually did. Outside on the street, Jane saw George Blunderfield. She'd known him for about 18 months. 
George was then stopping with his sister Henrietta, who lived nearby. Jane hadn't got far from her house when she heard screams and went back. There, she found Annie crying because the little girl was scared of being left alone in the dark. Jane soothed Annie and then went on her way shopping. Jane came back about an hour later and saw George outside again and chatted with him briefly. At around four the next morning, Jane saw that Annie had been sexually assaulted. The little girl told her what had happened, and she asked when George Blunderfield would be back with those lollies that he'd promised her. George was arrested that morning. Annie would be admitted to hospital a few days later on account of her injuries, and her condition became so grave that police were ready to take her dying deposition to be used in court. While she was touch and go, George was remanded in custody without bail. Annie survived and George faced trial on the 26th of March 1900 at the criminal sittings in Perth. Jane, the doctor and neighbours gave evidence for the prosecution. Western Australia's law had recently been changed so that in such cases, minors could testify. Though victims were too young to swear an oath, they were warned by the judge that they must tell the truth. So instructed, Annie was asked if she could point out the man who'd assaulted her. She indicated... George Blunderfield. Then she was questioned. Everything that Annie said in the presence of the jury was deemed, quote, unfit for publication by the newspapers. Giving evidence, the police sergeant who'd arrested George said that he'd asked the accused man to show him the underclothing he'd worn the previous night. George said he'd just washed it. After this, the sergeant had taken George to see Annie. He'd asked her who'd been with her the night before. She replied, George Blunderfield, and he promised to bring me jujubes. George's defence tried to establish that his movements that night weren't suspicious and that he hadn't been in the vicinity of Jane and Annie's house at the time of the rape. Stephen Blunderfield testified that he'd seen his brother George at Jane's house at 8pm. He'd gone there to tell him to come home to his sister's place. George was then staying with his elder sister, Henrietta. Records at Ancestry.com.au show that Henrietta was married to Charles Knoll. He was then working as a Kalgoorlie nightman, that is, one of the fellows who emptied cesspools and dunnies and transported the waste with his horse and cart. Henrietta and Charles had three children, and their eldest boy was another Stephen, then aged 10, and we'll be hearing more about him later on. In court, Henrietta testified that George had been at her house from about 8pm. Around 9.30, they'd heard a scream from Jane's place. Henrietta had told George to go and see what the matter was. He did, and he came back a few minutes later saying that the scream had come from Annie because Jane had given her a thrashing for crying out at being left at home. Henrietta then asked George to go and find her husband Charles, the nightman, who was supposed to have come home by now. George went off in search of him, but ended up at a local pub. A defence witness testified that he'd seen George arrive at Heard's Hotel at 10pm and had had drinks with him for the next hour. Another witness testified he knew that George was in the habit of doing his washing on Sunday mornings. Speaking in his own defence, George said that he did know Jane well and when he visited her, he would use the back door that was left unlocked. On that Saturday night, he'd been there around 7.30 to 8 and then he'd gone back to Henrietta's place. Later, they'd heard the screams. Outside her house, Jane had told him that she'd given Annie a thrashing. George testified he'd gone into the house and seen the little girl. To help calm Annie down, he said if she was good, he'd give her lollies. 
George went back to Henrietta's house before going out to look for Charles. To get to town, he crossed through Jane's property as he usually did, and he'd seen her and another woman and briefly chatted with them before going on his way. George Blunderfield said he'd had nothing to do with any outrage. On the 28th of March, after the judge summed up, the jury retired at 12.25pm. They were back 40 minutes later. George Blunderfield was guilty as charged. Asked if he had anything to say, he professed his innocence. In sentencing, the judge said there was no excuse for committing, quote, this dastardly deed upon an innocent child, and he put George away for 12 years. While he was behind bars in September 1901, George's mother Mary died in Adelaide. Six months later, in March 1902, Henrietta's husband Charles was carting waste out to the Boulder Depot when he was jolted from his cart and then crushed beneath one of his wheels. Henrietta was to remarry in 1904 and become Henrietta Houston. George's father Benjamin also remarried that year, but a new wife didn't mean a new life for the old man who was a heavy drinker. One night in August 1907, Benjamin walked in front of a train. His mutilated body was found in a pit the next morning next to a railway crossing. At the inquest, witnesses, including Frank, his eldest son, said Benjamin had of late been drinking heavily and acting erratically. His death was ruled accidental, though a suspicion of suicide did linger. That same month, August 1907, well-behaved prisoner George Blunderfield was released on probation, having served just over half of his 12-year sentence for child rape. Even though he'd been freed, George couldn't go back to the goldfields, and nor could he be George Farrow Blunderfield. Yet whatever documents he had in that name or could get his hands on were still useful after a simple erasure. So, in September 1907, the scorpion shed his skin and moved somewhere new where no one knew him. Charles Efford was a postmaster who'd worked in various regional towns across Western Australia. By 1909, he'd spent the past few years in charge of the Post and Telegraph Office at Hopetown, a little port village 370 miles southeast of Perth, which served the booming gold and copper shire of Ravensthorpe. Charles and his wife Ruth lived in rooms behind the offices. They had three children, Ivy, aged eight, Samuel, who was six, and little baby Mabel. As Hopetown had no bank, Charles was also responsible for accepting deposits. With coastal steamers leaving for Albany and Perth frequently, this cash was remitted to other branches every few days as a precaution against robbery. But on the night of Wednesday the 27th of October 1909, there was about £108 in the safe. That evening, Charles wasn't feeling too well and so he went to bed early. At 9.15, there was a knock on the back door. Ruth was still up and dressed, so she answered it. It was George Farrow. Mr and Mrs Efford thought highly of this man who'd come to Hopetown around the same time they had. They'd first gotten to know him when he'd done some telegraph linesman work for Charles. But now George was a wharf lumper, loading and unloading ships. Like many workers, he lived in a tent in a camp that was about 400 yards from the post office. George was popular with his fellow wharfies and with townspeople because he was a hard-working chap of cheerful disposition and sober habits. 
A regular visitor to the post office, George had endeared himself to Mr. and Mrs. Efford by being so good with their daughter Ivy and their son Sam. Now, this good citizen was at their back door to inform Charles that he'd seen an insulator on a nearby telegraph pole had been damaged. Ruth said her husband was in bed, but she'd passed the message on. Bidding each other good night, Ruth closed the back door, but didn't lock it. She went to bed around 9.30. Ruth slept closest to the window, which they left open that night to let in some cool air. At around 3.30am, Charles awoke and rolled over onto his left side. In the darkness, he perceived a figure crouched by the bed. Charles started to sit up and then was blinded by a flash and deafened by a blast. He felt his nose and cheek burn as he fell back on the mattress. Ruth screamed, What is it? A second later, a figure loomed over Charles and hit her on the head with an iron bar. If Ruth hadn't been wearing a hair pad, her skull might very well have been caved in. Stunned, thinking that her husband was dead, she jumped up for the window. The intruder rushed around the bed and grabbed her nightdress. This garment was ripped from Ruth's body as she jumped five feet, landing heavily on the ground outside. Ivy and Sam had awoken a minute earlier when they'd heard the back door. Seconds later, they'd seen a man in the corridor with a lantern heading for their parents' bedroom. Then, the bang and the scream. The terrified kids had jumped from their window, and now outside they saw their mother on the ground and they rushed to help her. Above, in the moonlight, the intruder was coming through the window after them. Mother and children fled for a neighbor's house. The man dropped down and gave chase for a moment. Then he retreated to the yard, seemed to be looking for something in the shadow of the house before he ran from the property. In the bedroom, Charles regained consciousness. His nose was grazed and his ear scorched and black. There was blood on the sheets and a bullet hole in the pillow. Charles Efford had come within an inch of having his head blown clean off. With baby Mabel safe in the bed, he ran to wake the constable at the police station. Coming back to the house, Charles collected Mabel and went to join Ruth, Ivy and Sam at the neighbour's place. Searching the post office quarters and the property, the constable realised the true horror of what might have been. On the ground outside the bedroom window was a big Colt revolver whose chambers contained one spent cartridge and four more live bullets. On the bed was the iron bar that had been used to hit Ruth. It was wrapped in hessian that had been tied with fishing line. And at the back door, the constable found a bag containing 2,000 detonators and a port wine bottle filled with kerosene. The intruder's plan seemed to be clear. He'd come to steal whatever money was in the safe, the key to which was in Charles's trousers. But before he committed this robbery, he'd planned to kill Charles and Ruth and the children. Having committed these murders and taken the cash, he'd then blow up and burn down the building to cover his crime and obscure his tracks. As for this monster's identity, there was no mystery. While Charles and Ruth had only seen a shape in the darkness, Sam and Ivy had eyeballed the man they called Mr. Farrow, both in the corridor and when he'd been at the window. The constable preserved footprints near the house until dawn when he called in an Aboriginal tracker. What this man saw was distinctive. One of the attacker's boots had a damaged sole. The tracker followed these prints directly to George Farrow's tent. 
At his camp, police found hessian that fitted the torn portion around the iron bar and fishing line identical to that that had been used to tie this material to the weapon. An empty bullet carton was discovered, as were live rounds in a tin that matched those in the revolver. Police also found the boot with that distinctive damaged sole. By the time the police and the tracker got to the tent, George Farrow had already cleared out. He hadn't fled though, he'd just gone to work unloading a steamer that was lying offshore that day. While he was out on the water, the Aboriginal tracker followed the boot prints from his camp and they led to a telegraph pole. It was clear it had been climbed and an inch later up there was damaged. From the telegraph pole, the boot prints led directly to the Efforts back door. Police believed George Farrow had done this damage himself because it gave him a reason to scope out the post office and insurance should Charles happen to check that night. George Farrow was arrested the moment he set foot on shore that evening. His co-workers couldn't believe it and they held him in such high regard that they immediately launched a subscription to help pay for his defence. But they dropped it when they learned who he really was, George Farrow Blunderfield who'd been convicted of raping a child and charged previously with attempted murder. Now, he was charged with two counts of that offence. Police investigations revealed he'd owned a revolver since April 1908. He'd recently bought cartridges that fit the gun. In the days leading up to the attack, he'd purchased kerosene and a bottle of port. Further, George's boot prints had been discovered by the Aboriginal tracker at a local business from which 2,000 detonators had been stolen and a witness came forward to say he'd seen George lurking about this place in the days leading up to what the newspapers called the Hopetown Outrage. While they'd been incredibly lucky, Mr and Mrs Efford were a little the worse for wear. Charles suffered shock while Ruth was confined to bed for a few days, suffering the same and recovering from a nasty head wound. George Farrow Blunderfield appeared in Hopetown's little court on the 30th of October. He denied the crime, denied owning a gun, denied everything. George was ordered to stand trial and he was refused bail. Two weeks later, having learned the extent of the evidence against him, George made a written statement. In it, he said he'd been walking along the Ravensthorpe Road that night when he'd seen the broken insulator and went to tell Mrs Efford. Then he'd gone to a union meeting and dropped into a hotel, staying there until closing time when he'd taken himself home to his bed in his tent. Then this, quote, The next thing I knew was when the shot was fired. I seemed to realise for the first time what was happening. I felt completely dazed for the time being. I could not say where I was. George continued, quote, I heard Mrs. Efford scream. It seemed to me like a nightmare. I saw her go out through the window. I went out and fell on my head and was partly stunned for the moment. When I got up, I then for the first time knew where I was. Seeing what I had done, I did not know what to do at the time. Acting on the impulse of the moment, I ran back to my camp and went to bed. George went on, quote, the next thing I remember is George French waking me at 6.30 in the morning and telling me of the shooting at the post office. It came back to me like a flash then. After George left me, I looked about my camp for the revolver, but could not find it. 
Then it occurred to me that I threw it out of my hands outside the post office, loaded in five chambers. Certainly, I could have done damage with that lot, but, as already stated, I stayed my murderous hand when I realised what I was doing, and, thank God, I controlled my feelings in time. George went on to explain that he'd gone to work out of force of habit that day, but that his mind hadn't really been on the job. Returning to shore, he'd been arrested. George realised that, on the face of it, his account didn't make a lot of sense, but there was an explanation for this. Quote, Portions of the statement given to you may appear strange, but when I tell you of a few incidents which occurred in my career, perhaps it may serve to explain things. Now, in the first place, some 12 years ago, I received a bad fracture of the skull as the result of a fall off a bicycle whilst riding at a high rate of speed between Menzies and Niagara. I was treated for months by the late Dr. Omara of Kalgoorlie. Subsequently, I trained for bicycle racing, but owing to defective mental balance, I had to give up riding altogether. My head has never been right since. This defect became more apparent after a sunstroke, which I suffered some six months later. George went on, quote, Up to this time, I had had an unblemished career. No one could say a word against my character. My every action was honourable, but since then there have been times when I can safely say I have not been responsible for my actions. There are times when I am so tempted to murder someone, no matter who, and I find it almost impossible to restrain my hand. I have had many a hard battle to control my actions. George concluded by suggesting whatever possessed him might run in the family. Quote, in August 1907, my poor father committed suicide whilst temporarily insane. George said that until that terrible night in October, he'd worked hard for an honest living in Hopetown. Further, quote, I never had any grudge against Mr. and Mrs. Efford and family. They were people always respected, and Mr. Efford proved a friend to me. I cannot explain why I should turn on my best friends. My God, I do regret it. I am sorry, and I thank God they are alive and well. It may seem strange when I state that time after time, I have completely lost my memory and have done things whilst in that state which I cannot possibly account for. A few notes about this statement. George placed his supposed fractured skull 12 years ago, so that would be October of 1897. But by this time, he was a well-known rider in Kalgoorlie. And, as we've heard, his racing spills and injuries were reported. So, if he'd had to give up riding because of a skull fracture, the papers would have let readers know about it. As it was, his racing career didn't finish until nearly two years later, September 1899, just before he was arrested for bike theft. If he'd sustained that fractured skull before he began training as a racer, this would have had to be prior to November 1896 at the very latest, as this was when he was first reported as being in a cycling event. Maybe George just got the dates wrong, but the strongest argument against this was that he hadn't raised his supposed mental problems in his defences during the trials for bike theft, attempted murder or child rape. If he'd really been plagued by blackout spells in which he committed crimes, why on these three occasions had he been so sure of his innocence? The most probable answer would seem to be that back then he'd felt confident he could beat those charges without confessing guilt with extenuating circumstances. This time, though, he knew the odds were stacked against him. Conveniently, the doctor who'd supposedly treated him for this fractured skull in Kalgoorlie had since passed away. 
but surely George might have called on people who'd known him in the goldfields who could testify that he'd suffered such an injury. Yet, he didn't. If George had simply attacked Mr and Mrs Efford, his claim to have been in the grip of some sort of fugue state might have been credible. But had he also been in a blackout when he'd bought the kerosene and the bullets and stolen the detonators and interfered with the insulator? It's also worth noting that this time around, he made no mention of the typhoid he'd suffered as a child in South Africa, though in the future, this would become part of his story. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On the 8th of December 1909, a decade on from him last being here and beating the attempted murder charge, George Blunderfield was back in Perth Criminal Court. The charges were that he'd unlawfully attempted to kill Charles Efford and that he'd unlawfully wounded him with intent to do him grievous bodily harm. The charges relating to Ruth weren't proceeded with, though they would be should the accused somehow be acquitted by the jury. The court heard that George had been on good terms with the postmaster, with the Crown suggesting that the motive had been robbery. The jury heard George had been known to have a revolver and that it was similar to the one found outside the house. They heard about the hessian and the fishing line found in his tent, which matched the weapon used to hit Mrs Efford. The Aboriginal tracker testified about the boot prints leading from the post office to the camp and then to the telegraph pole and to the back door of the Efford's residence. The jury also heard George had bought kerosene a couple of days before the attack. He'd also been seen near the place where the detonators had been stolen, and the black tracker testified he'd found his boot prints there too. The court heard from a shopkeeper who said George had asked him for bullets. The man didn't have any but said he could get some in. George had come back the day before the attack to say there was no need because he'd obtained some cartridges. The police constable testified about finding an empty bullet carton at the camp and cartridges like those in the revolver. Ruth Efford testified as to what had happened in the bedroom and so did Charles. Neither could swear who their attacker was, though Charles said he perceived that the man had staring eyes. But their children, Ivy and Samuel, gave confident testimony about seeing Mr Farrow first inside their house and then at their parents' bedroom window. Heading off the head injury defence, the Crown Prosecutor told the jury that George had only made this statement when he'd learned the extent of the evidence against him. George's older sister Henrietta had been steadfast in her support for her brother. The State Records Office of Western Australia has a petition she wrote in 1904 to the state's Chief Secretary asking for mitigation of the child rape sentence. George didn't get it then, but her support likely played a role in his 1907 probation. If Henrietta regretted that now, he was on trial for attempted murder and grievous bodily harm, it wasn't evident because she and defence lawyer Mr Penny were hoping to get George off on an insanity plea. 
But this was scuppered when Dr Montgomery, Western Australia's Inspector General of the Insane, testified for the Crown that George Blunderfield was not out of his mind, nor had he been when he committed these crimes. This was backed up by testimony from one of George's mates who said in the two years he'd known him, in effect the entire time that George had lived in Hopetown, he'd never seen him act anything but rationally. Faced with all of this, Henrietta and Mr Penny pleaded with George to change his plea. He agreed and the trial ended with the judge directing the jury to find the accused man guilty of both charges. They did, and the judge then questioned the Crown Prosecutor in open court over George's previous criminal record. Despite his past, everyone agreed that this whole affair was very strange. Paraphrasing the judge, the Kalgoorlie miner said, quote, The case was a most peculiar one, for Blunderfield appeared to have turned on people with whom he had been most friendly, but that, of course, was no defence. The judge said that George was a dangerous man who belonged behind bars, and he actually wished he was able to set an indeterminate sentence. Instead, he ordered George to serve the rest of the rape sentence, which minus remissions earned totaled three years. On top of that, for the attempted murder and for inflicting grievous harm, the guilty man would do another nine years with hard labour. Upon hearing this sentence, George said, quote, Thank you, Your Honour. George Blunderfield would be able to earn about seven weeks remission per year, so if he kept himself out of trouble, he might be released around 1920. For the next three and a half years or so, George did succeed in keeping those murderous impulses under control. So much so that his good behaviour saw him transferred to Rottnest Island. For a white prisoner, this was a pretty comfortable place to be. Not so if you're an Aboriginal convict. From 1838, Rotnest, which is 12 miles or so west of Fremantle, had been a hellish prison for Aboriginal men and boys, with one in ten of the 4,000 who were incarcerated there dying before they could be released. In 1904, the Western Australian government had officially closed the prison so it could open the island to tourism in a limited capacity. But Aboriginal convicts were still sent there to toil in a forced labour camp which a handful of white prisoners helped to run. These trustees enjoyed privileges unknown in the usual penal environment. So it was on Sunday the 5th of April 1914 that George Blunderfield, then working as a cook for the Aboriginal convicts, was allowed to spend the day fishing from the shore in the company of two other white trustees. The three men had a good morning, catching and cooking their lunch before casting their lines again in the afternoon. At around three, George had had enough, and he said to his mates he was heading back to the camp. They watched him walk off and then went back to their fishing. At that evening's muster, it was discovered that George was missing. His cell was searched, but apart from the clothes he'd been wearing, he'd only taken a towel and a pair of swimming trunks. The next morning, during a search of the area around the fishing spot, George's footprints were discovered. He'd walked about 400 yards along the track towards the camp. Then, he'd turned off near Bickley Point and gone down to a beach at Porpoise Bay. George's towel and his clothes were still on the sand, but there were no tracks showing that he'd left the water. A search of the coastline and its reefs didn't turn him up. Had the prisoner gone for an innocent swim and drowned or been taken by a shark? Had he succumbed to either fate while making a foolhardy escape attempt? 
or had George somehow beaten the odds and made it to the mainland 12 miles away? That afternoon, Perth's Daily News was in no doubt, headlining its late-breaking story with one word, escaped. The paper said George had likely gotten off Rotnest on the Zephyr, a tourist boat that visited the island on Sundays and public holidays. The Zephyr had been there yesterday and pushed off not long after George was last seen. If he'd had clothes stashed, he could have come out of the water along the bay somewhere, walked to the port without being spotted and stowed away on the boat. Western Australia's controller of prisons was quick to respond with a statement about this theory. Quote, There is absolutely no indication that the man intended escaping. This official said the fact that he'd taken his bathers and towel meant he'd simply gone for a swim. Further, the Zephyr's tourist officers knew George by sight and they hadn't seen him aboard that afternoon. The controller concluded that George Farrow Blunderfield had drowned. Quote, He is known to have been a poor swimmer. It is almost certain that he has met his death by accident. Yet, short of his bloated and shark-bitten corpse washing up at Fremantle, people didn't want to believe he'd met his end in such a banal fashion. One conspiracy theory had it that a former prison mate who'd been released a fortnight earlier had visited Rottnest Island so he could hide clothes for George. He'd gotten to the Zephyr and done his Monte Cristo act on the mainland. Two weeks after George had disappeared, the Daily News recounted these rumours and concluded, quote, There appears good reason to believe that one of the most dangerous criminals is at present at large in the state. The fugitive's spooky-eyed portraits were circulated, but the police and prison authorities couldn't find him. What the police and the press didn't seem to know, but what we can now confirm via electoral rolls at ancestry.com.au, is that Stephen Blunderfield, George's brother, was living in Fremantle at this time and working as a train driver for the state government. As we've heard, Stephen was initially implicated in George's alleged bike thefts. Stephen had also played a part in getting John Campbell out to be attacked by George and Stephen had testified for his brother in the child rape case. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that it might have been Stephen who went to Rotnest and stashed some clothes to help George escape. Six weeks after George vanished, a letter writer to the Daily News said that it was an intolerable state of affairs that this man was still at large. The correspondent recalled that a few years back, when three minor criminals had escaped, quote, the authorities of both jail and police departments were most energetic in their efforts to effect a rearrest, chasing the fugitives with a large reward upon their heads all over the country and eventually running them to earth at Bunbury. What is to account for their loss of energy on this occasion? It was a bloody good question because a child rapist, convicted of one attempted murder and charged with another two, a man who defended himself in court by saying he was prone to uncontrollable murderous violence, was loose in Western Australia. Or at least he had been, because this letter writer seemed to be more than a conspiracy theorist. Quote, it was an open secret that he was seen hovering around in the vicinity of Netherlands for over three weeks, that he was supplied with money and food and frequently visited by his relatives, one of whom is a government servant, and that finally, in the broad noonday, he stepped aboard a coastal steamer at the port, thus again successfully evading the sleuth hounds of the law, as he had previously evaded his jailers at the island prison. 
The letter writer claimed that the police and jail authorities were plods who'd believed the drowning story because it was convenient and it let them off the hook. If George Blunderfield had boarded a coastal steamer, then where had he gone? Maybe north to a purling town where a man could reinvent himself without too many questions. While Broome was a wild west town, it was still in Western Australia where George was a wanted man. Better for him to be someplace else where he could go to grounds and maybe get a little help from family and old friends. South Australia certainly fit that bill. Yet, even here, he might come unstuck. His very best bet? Get out of Australia. Even if George could get new papers and rustle up an expensive fare, he ran the risk of being caught because Adelaide Port might be being watched. Same went for Albany and Fremantle, where any steamer bound for South Africa or Europe would stop before leaving Australian waters. Then, four months after his escape, in August 1914, the shot that was heard around the world changed everything for George Blunderfield. Now, the Australian government was paying men to go overseas and fight in the Great War. Back in Fremantle, George's brother Stephen was among the first to sign up, enlisting on the 10th of September 1914. As we'll hear, George kept in touch with his sisters by letter, so it's highly likely he knew that Stephen had joined the AIF and would soon be departing for foreign shores. George also would have learned of another family development in this direction, possibly again from letters, but possibly just from picking up a newspaper. In Queensland, just after midday on the 20th of November 1914, a Mr Horace Young, one of the directors of the Fairy Mead Sugar Company, was on his way out to the plantation and mill from Bundaberg in a chauffeured motor car. In his bag, Mr Young carried £1,750 to pay wages. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's getting on to quarter of a million dollars. When they were about four miles from their destination, Mr Young and his driver had to stop to open gates across the road. And as they did this, they were bailed up by two men in black masks wielding revolvers. These highwaymen did the money-or-your-life routine. And despite being threatened, Mr Young and the driver didn't cough up the cash straight away. The robbers searched them and the car without success. The shorter of the bandits was fed up, saying, quote, where is the money? No nonsense. We mean to have it. Mr Young now relented and told him it was in the back of the car. The masked men took two leather bags of loot out of the boot. Then the shorter crook smashed up the car's bonnet and ripped out its electrics so that Mr Young and the driver couldn't give chase. With that, the robbers made a wobbly getaway on bicycles. The shorter crook was trying to carry the heavier bag of cash and its weight caused him to fall off twice. The other robber grabbed up that bag and off they went. The headlines would be nothing if not evocative. Robbery under arms, said the Queensland Times. The Daily Standard bled, hands up, daylight robbery. But this was one of the shortest criminal sensations in Australian history. What the bike riding bushrangers hadn't remembered was that there was a station about 300 yards away from where they'd staged the robbery. And in this station, there was a telephone. Mr Young and his driver ran there and they called the Bundaberg police. At this time in Australia, cars weren't as common as they are now, so the three Bundaberg sergeants had to borrow a motor from a local resident. But they only had a few miles to cover. 
Crossing the Burnett River Bridge, the police saw two men coming the other way on bicycles. When the police slowed their borrowed car, the cyclists turned around and raced away. Realising they couldn't outride their pursuers, the masked men soon jumped from their bikes and ran along the river, the taller of the crooks throwing the heavy bag into the water. Given that these two desperados were carrying fully loaded revolvers, the police officers acted bravely in tackling them to the ground. The criminal masterminds were ferry-made workers, which is how they'd known who to rob, where and when. Their careers as highwaymen, from hold-up to handcuffs, had lasted just 20 minutes. Their names? Well, the shorter crook was Charles Farrow Blunderfield, George's 27-year-old brother. The taller crook was Stephen Knoll, Henrietta's 25-year-old son, George and Charles's nephew. The men gave their real names but didn't disclose their blood relationship. Oddly, the police and the newspapers didn't seem to make the connection with one of Australia's most wanted fugitives. If they had, it would have been a far bigger story. But as it was, the daring highway robbery did make the papers all over Australia, including the Adelaide Dailies. So George, in hiding, would have known. The obvious question is, had he been an influence on his little brother and on his nephew? It's safe to say that as kids in the late 1890s, they would have looked up to him. It had to be exciting for Charles, who was then living in Adelaide, to have an older brother who'd gone to the gold rush and become a champion cyclist. Stephen, meanwhile, grew up in Kalgoorlie and would have been in the crowd to see his uncle win races. Had they been put off by George's crimes? Well, the Blunderfield family seemed to be a forgiving bunch. George's escape from Rottnest Island, meanwhile, as the newspapers had said, was the stuff of the Count of Monte Cristo and probably, if anything, inspired Charles and Stephen to try their luck as latter-day bushrangers. What we can say with confidence is that George's experiences hadn't taught Charles and Stephen the lesson that crime doesn't pay. Then again, neither might their punishment. On the 24th of February 1915, they were each sentenced to four years in jail, the judge saying that if they were good, they might be out in two. But thanks to the Gallipoli disaster, Charles and Stephen would serve even less time than that. On the 18th of December 1915, 10 months into his sentence, Charles was allowed to enlist. On his attestation papers, Charles listed his sister Jessie as his next of kin. She now lived in Port Melbourne with her husband and their children. While Jessie's been absent from this story, we'll hear more about her in the next instalment. As for cousin Stephen Knoll, he was allowed to enlist two months later. While their reprieves didn't make the papers, George would have known via his sisters, Henrietta, and quite possibly Jessie, to whom he also wrote. By September 1916, two of George's brothers and his nephew had joined the AIF and were overseas. If he wanted to get out of Australia and to reinvent himself, all he had to do was enlist as well. In 1914, when the war broke out, recruiters had wanted men aged 19 to 38. George had then been 41. When the age limit was increased to 45, George faced a quandary. Charles and Stephen had been allowed to enlist, even though they'd been criminals, but they were young, first-time offenders, and they hadn't hurt anyone. George was a child rapist and would-be murderer turned prison escapee and interstate fugitive. It wasn't as though this would be forgiven and forgotten just because he wanted to fight for king and country. 
If George tried to sign up under his own name, he'd be back in Fremantle jail before he knew it. But the war going badly acted in his favour. As the horror of Gallipoli bled into the nightmare of the Western Front, the AIF's enlistment had gone into steep decline, and in October 1916, the first conscription referendum had failed. Now recruiters were far less likely to ask hard questions. Requirements had been relaxed. You could be older, you could be shorter, you could be skinnier, you could be someone else entirely. So it was that the scorpion shed his skin again. On the 27th of December 1916 in Adelaide, the AIF had its newest recruit, Arthur Geoffrey Oldring, aged 44, occupation engine driver. George had borrowed the surname from neighbours he'd had as a boy back in England. But he took a chance by listing his sister Henrietta as his next of kin and by making provision for her to get half his pay when he was overseas. It was a risk, but if he was killed fighting, then Henrietta at least would know about it, and she might make it known to authorities that her criminal fugitive brother had tried to make amends and in doing so had made the ultimate sacrifice. New recruit Private Arthur Oldring would soon be on the Western Front. There, he might kill, and he might be killed. But if he survived, he could be reborn. Baptised in blood, he'd not only be a new man, but come back to Australia as a hero. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Nature of the Scorpion. The third and final instalment will be out next week, but you can hear how George Blunderfield's story ends right now by becoming a Patreon supporter. The link's in your show notes. By becoming a supporter, you'll get every episode early and ad-free. You'll also be able to access exclusive bonus shows and the full audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. And, of course, you'll also get a thank you shout-out in an upcoming episode. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.